What's up, Warriors, and welcome to Warrior Life Podcast number 381. This is Buck Green in for Jeff Anderson this week, and this week I'd like to go back to the era before the internet when people used to buy things out of mail-order catalogs by talking to people over the phone and then reciting their addresses into the phone, as well as credit card numbers. I know, we're talking real Dark Ages stuff, but this is how I got my initial education on the topic of knife fighting quote-unquote. Those are air quotes. And the funny thing is, there are myths that we still contend with today in the world of knife fighting that go all the way back to those prehistoric, pre-internet times. All right, are you ready? Then let's talk five knife fighting myths that just need to die. Tactical firearms training. Urban survival. Close quarters combat. Welcome to the show that helps you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is the Warrior Life Podcast. Okay, we're back. This is Buck Green in for Jeff Anderson. I I know that for some of you, this is going to be a stretch, some of you who are a little bit younger. But believe it or not, there was a time before there was the internet. Well, there was sort of the internet, but no one was really using it for what we use it for today. Um, When I first went to college... We could talk to people at other colleges using the internet or some precursor thereof, but you had to append this really complicated text string to the email to get your email out of the college's system. Uh, We had computer labs that were basically monochrome monitors connected to this mainframe or whatever it was. It was called a VAX. I don't even know what a VAX is to this day. Some of you computer nerds know what that is and know that it's old, but... uh, Back then, I remember when I was a senior in college, we finally got some machines that were, quote, connected to the Internet, unquote. And then I got my first computer that could actually go on the Internet uh, not long after I graduated. So uh, it was probably around 1995 or so when I got my my really, really cool Pentium computer (laughs) with America Online dial-up Internet. So I, I got the full early days of the internet experience man that was that was something else uh back then you dialed into the internet and then you could sort of go places and do things but it just wasn't the same so there was a lot of years during that period of time where when i bought stuff i still bought it mail order from mail order catalogs and you you ended up on these mailing lists the catalogs would show up in the mail and some of those catalog companies are still around to this day like the sportsman's guide for instance uh some of those catalogs have since gone out of business one of them was delta press another one was loom panics both of those are gone uh paladin press was a big one and that only went out of business just recently um but all of these companies sold what you'd call action library type titles. And I believe that was what Paladin built itself as, as the action library. So to get books on things like knife fighting, that was the only place to do it. You couldn't go to a bookstore. Uh, they didn't have them. Uh, you know, you, you had to get them from these specialty publishers. And back then, I used to order every book on knife fighting I could get my hands on. I have actually a pretty vintage library of knife fighting books. And what's interesting about that is, In the intervening years, I actually learned how to use a knife for self-defense. I trained in a number of what we would call blade-aware systems that actually show you how to use a knife. And there have been, in recent years, uh, sort of a rise in popularity in what I call knife cults, which are basically just knife systems, you know, systems that focus primarily on using a blade for self-defense. And 
those are, are stripped down systems that, that take out everything but here's how to use a blade. Uh, so there's all these these great systems and all this teaching out there that teaches you how to really use a blade if you have to use it to, to deliver force to someone who's attacking you and trying to kill you. And up until that point, there were all these myths and all this misinformation and all this traditional martial arts stuff. There's, there's a lot of sort of chaff in the, in the market of, of, let's call it knife fighting, although anyone who knows anything about using a knife for self-defense doesn't really use the term knife fighting anymore. It was popular back then. People still use it today, but it's just not seen as it once was. So you've got all this lore about the right way or the wrong way to use a knife for, for quote-unquote knife fighting. And it's all myths. It all goes back to that pre-internet catalog mail order books on knife fighting era where people were publishing books on how to use a knife and some of them were great and some of them didn't really know what they were doing. Some were just making it up as they went along. So as someone who has spent many, many years not only reading just about every book on the market on knife fighting, but also getting actual real life training and using a blade for self-defense, I can tell you that there are what I would consider five different myths that persist to this day that just need to get stomped out. And what brought this to mind was I was on Facebook just the other day in a Filipino martial arts group, and they were arguing about one of the myths that I'm going to talk to you about today. And the fact that people are still arguing about these things astonishes me. I mean, I guess it shouldn't because I forget that not everyone is old like me. So some people are still discovering this going along this learning curve, just like I did back in the day. But the problem is we should know better now because it's so much easier to communicate real training now. You know, back when, when in the mail order days, you couldn't just go on the internet and, for example, figure out if someone's credentials were on the up and up or if they were less than legitimate. You know, the some of the, the famous martial arts frauds of the 1980s could never have put down roots today the way they did back then before it was possible to vet them so quickly. Some of the more ridiculous martial arts systems that floated around back then never would have become popular if not for the fact that they could do it by mail order. Um, so I think the the world of, of internet access has made training in self-defense a lot faster and in some ways a lot better, in other ways more complex. But it has definitely changed very much what we consider acceptable and what we don't. And the problem is, despite that, some of these myths from the old days persist. So let's talk about what those five myths are as I see them. Uh, the first one, and this one is the, the one that always springs to mind, this came to my mind first, is knife grips. There are people who seem to think it really, really matters what grip you're holding your knife in. Are you holding it in a hammer grip or an ice, ice pick grip or in a saber grip or in a this grip or in a that grip? There's the one guy who calls the grip where your thumb is up off the handle the, the cancer grip. And then there's the, the you know, the, the all kinds of grips. So many that I can't even name them all. Edge in, edge out, blade up, blade down, all this stuff. It really doesn't matter. That's what I've come to understand in the years of training that I've done, and I think what anybody who spends a lot of time doing this will tell you, they have their preferences. There are certain methods that lend themselves to certain techniques. And, you know, for example, um, pical knife fighting techniques are meant to be done with the knife down and the edge in, or the knife up and the edge, uh, uh, you know, knife forward and edge up. So 
there are ways that how you grip the knife dictates the mechanics you then use, but it's not nearly the secret or significant angle that so many of the early knife fighting people wanted to believe that it was. So I can tell you after all that that the the specifics of the grip don't matter as long as you have a good stable uh, grip on the knife. It doesn't matter the exact orientation you're using as long as the orientation supports the method that you've been trained to use. And other than that, there's no secret. There's no like, well, I could have defeated him in, in our duel atop a, a rooftop in the middle of a rainstorm, uh, but I, I didn't defeat him because he had his grip in a, he had his knife in a forward grip and I had mine in a reverse grip or vice versa. So just remember, uh, whatever you're doing, whatever method you've been trained in, as long as your grip supports that, the, re the specifics of it don't matter as long as you're not going to lose your grip on the knife. And, and you know, all those, all those chapters in old knife fighting books on the, all the different ways to hold a knife and the names for the grips, it's just so irrelevant. Okay, uh, number two, uh, the second myth uh, from the old knife fighting world that just needs to go away is that the type of knife you're using somehow makes a difference. You know, there are people who've built entire systems around how big the knife is, um, whether or not it should be a Bowie knife, or we've, we all went through like a Tanto knife phase, at least I did. If you, like me, lived through the 1980s, I guarantee you went through a Tanto phase, uh, and that's probably more accurately described as an Americanized Tanto uh, phase, because the Americanized Tanto is a Tanto-style knife where, and, and if you can hear in the background the cushing of a cash register, that's because the Americanized Tanto was made to cash in on the fact that they're easy to manufacture. You have two angles meeting at a secondary point. There's no curve. That's very easy to manufacture. Often they were made with a chisel style edge, which means it's sharp on one side only. That's another cost cutting measure. So they sold you this angular knife that is very easy to manufacture and very easy to sharpen on one side, and then told you that that was on purpose because it makes the knife so much sharper. Well, the other side effect is it makes it look so much cooler, especially if you're into martial arts stuff. So we all kind of went through a Tanto phase if you lived through that era. There's the Karambit, which uh, a little more recent of a trend, but I think probably just as much a, a function of marketing for its popularity. I mean, yeah, they're cool. But the type of knife that you choose really doesn't matter as long as you remember that the pointy end goes in the other guy. Now, yes, some types of knives cannot be used in the same way that other types of knives can. Any sort of quote-unquote straight knife, like a Bowie knife or a Tanto knife or a, a dagger, those all lend themselves to straight thrusting. A karambit, by, by contrast, because it's curved, can only be used for sort of a hooking type of, of puncturing thrust. It's a very different mechanic. Apart from that, though, like all the angles of attack and defense and all that stuff is pretty much the same. So unless the design of your knife is so radically specified, like with a karambit, as to dictate a certain method, the type of knife you're using really doesn't matter. If your system is not built around a very radically curved edge like a karambit, then everything that works with a Bowie knife should work with a rusty screwdriver because an effective knife system is really about putting steel into somebody else's organs. That's what neutralizes them. And, and this brings me to the debate that I saw on Facebook that sort of inspired this topic this week, which is I saw people arguing about whether or not stabbing or slashing was more effective when using a knife defensively. And 
You might think, well, yes, I've had that debate. You might have opinions about that debate. I'm here to tell you there is no debate. There is no such thing. Because simply biologically, the way you stop the human body is not to cut it enough so that blood comes out of it. This got really gory really fast. I'm sorry. The way you stop a human being is not to damage or disrupt tendons or muscles. Those things all have an impact, but they don't neutralize someone completely in the same way that putting a piece of metal into one of their organs does. Uh, stabbing is always going to be the way you neutralize someone quickly. It's why in prison they don't, you know, focus on slashing the other guy until he gives up all of his cigarettes and playing cards. I don't know. The only things I know about prison I learned from watching Oz and prison movies. But if you want to stop another guy, you know, what are what are all prison knives? They're all stabbing implements for good reason. That's You've reduced the weapon to its fundamental primary. It doesn't get any more fundamental than that. Now, yes, if you slash someone badly enough, they'll bleed. Eventually, they'll run out. <laughs> and if you damage their tendons and their muscles, it'll affect their ability to aggress on you, depending on what you damage. Uh, mostly, though, slashing and cutting is more for a deterring effect. It's, it's to discourage someone. If I'm going to slice and cut someone, it's because, for instance, one of their limbs has gotten close enough to me that I'm trying to explain to them that it should not be there. Somebody reaches in through the window of your car and you cut them. Now, I'm not saying that just because somebody reaches into your car, you're justified in delivering what could be potentially lethal force. You've got to judge these things based on the situation. And you can't see me, but I'm, my arms are gesticulating wildly because this is an important point. But more often than not, if you're just cutting or slicing, it's because you're trying to deter sort of an interloping limb. Um, when you really want to neutralize someone, though, you are putting the blade in them. There's no debate there. There's no getting around that. So the fact that people still argue about that is ridiculous to me because this isn't a question of opinion. It's a question of biological reality as far as how the body works. Um, now, we can argue whether or not you should go to neutralize them. You could argue that a more effective knife system is to discourage them, but not to try to neutralize them so you don't, I don't know, get arrested for murder or something. Those are all arguments you can have. But when we're talking about the biological reality of what stops a person, that's not arguable because that's just biology. It's just, I want to say physics, but it's less physics and more biology. Although the physics comes into play when they fall down. So, you know, gravity takes over. All right, uh, number four of knife fighting myths that just need to die. Uh, all of the arguing about stance. One of the those early knife fighting books. This is what they all sort of had in common. They all had a, a section on the grip you were supposed to use, and that got really detailed. And they all had a section on the stance. Young me, young wide-eyed me, trying to learn knife fighting from books that he bought from Paladin Press and Delta Press thought that those grips and those stances were really important. And gosh darn, don't people look cool when they're doing knife fighting grips in conjunction with knife fighting stances. Um, and I remember seeing a documentary about the making of the Matrix, and they talked about in the kung fu fight, in the sort of virtual world kung fu fight between Morpheus and Neo, there are these pauses in the action where they both do kung fu stances. And 
the documentary referred to that as the pose downs. They were posing. And that's what all these books with all the stances and everything else were really geared around, was posing people to look like knife fighters. It didn't really have anything to do with how effective they were. And yeah, I mean, moving your body in a certain way to protect your organs and stuff, that matters. But in the flurry and adrenaline of actually dealing with someone with a knife or having a knife used against you, nobody's worried about their stance. It's it's much too fast and much too ugly for stance to really come into it. All you can do is gross motor stuff, like am I covering up my organs while I'm being pummeled or my arm is being punctured, that kind of thing. It's It's much uglier. Reality is much uglier and faster than any amount of posing could ever encompass. So... Remember that uh, when it comes to actual use of a blade in, in a, any kind of a situation, it's nice to know stances. You're probably not going to get to use them. And your footwork, if you, if you understand your footwork well, you'll tend to do your footwork instinctively, but you're not, it's not going to look great. You know, the, what, what's the saying? The, the, the least you do in practice is the best you'll do in reality. So there's there's an argument there for learning that well and sort of internalizing it so that you do it without thinking, because under stress, you're not going to be thinking about that at all. All right, uh, let's review real quick before we get to number five Uh, of the five old school knife fighting myths that I think should just die. One of them was that your grip matters. It, It really doesn't. One of them was that the type of knife matters. It doesn't unless you're using a knife that's so specialized that it dictates a certain type of method. Uh, number three was the stabbing versus slashing is a debate. Debate. Uh, it's not. <laughs> There's just no arguing that. Number four was stance matters. It, I mean, sort of, but no, not, not really. You're not going to really get to use that. And then number five has to do with the with the quick draw. You know, there's all these people talking about how fast they can deploy their knife and how fast they can get to it and get it out. And, you know, I have the wave and I'm popping my knife open with the wave and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. All that is fine, but you're in a real-life encounter, you're not going to be quick-drawing anybody. Um, either you will get your knife out ahead of time because you saw the threat coming, or you won't have seen the threat coming, and suddenly you're into it with someone, and now you're fighting for a way to access your knife without getting it taken from you. So uh, my, the way I envision this is either you have your knife out because you th- saw a threat coming from a long way off and you got ready to meet it, or somebody's on top of you all of a sudden, you're fighting, you're wrestling, you're grappling, eventually you get to a position where you feel like you can deploy your knife. It's not going to be fast. You're going to do it in whatever way puts that knife in your hand as positively as possible so that you don't lose it. I've taken an entire class that was based on the idea of cutting a guy off you when you're grappling with him. So all of the scenarios started with him already on top of you, grappling with you in some way. And your job was to find a way to position yourself to slap your hand onto where your knife was and then find a way to deploy it. And these were folding knives, folding knife trainers that we were using. So you had to find a way to do that in such a way that you didn't get the knife taken from you, you didn't drop it, you didn't lose it. And if you couldn't get to it in the scuffle, you had to find a way to fight to it. Like if I'm wearing a knife in my right pocket and I'm on my right side on the ground, well, guess what? The knife's not coming out. So that was a really good class. Um, That was... um, was John Holshine, I think, was the guy who ran that. And you may recognize that name. He's one of those trainers who, who makes the rounds and has a really good reputation. Um, but anyway, you are never going to be quick drawing your knife. You really won't. 
Um, I had a, a self-defense situation myself. This actually happened. It's a true story. I went and saw a movie with some family members, and I was walking through the parking lot of a shopping mall where the movie theater was after the movie, uh, and the people I was with were walking in front of me. I was the last person in line because I'm slow. I was born on Mosey, and that's how it is. As we're walking, I notice that there are these two guys who seem to be following us directly. And granted, it's a parking lot. They could just be walking to another car somewhere nearby. But there were no other cars in the direction we were heading because this was after hours. The movie had let out. The only cars still in the parking lot were people who had come to see the movie. And they were greatly spread out across the parking lot where the gaps were when those people parked originally. So these two guys are following us. And I got a real bad feeling about it. So, knowing that the people I was with were well ahead of me, I turned, I put my hand on my, my knife, which was the Boker Reality-based blade at the time, and I snapped that knife open, and I waited. Now, I wasn't waving it around in front of me. I had it low next to my body in such a way that, at night, chances are pretty good that no one who wasn't focused on me would even know. And I'm, I'll tell you this, the people I was walking with, the people I went to see the movie with, never knew this happened. I had to tell them after the fact that it happened. They never noticed. So I snapped my knife out and I focused in on the two guys who were following us. And they were still a ways off when they looked at me and t did a 90 degree turn <laughs> and walked in the other direction. And I'm pretty sure, I don't know this for a fact, it could all be coincidence, it could all be in my head, but I'm pretty sure that those two guys were following us, saw me snap that knife open, and thought, no, someone else, and went in another direction. And so that was a case where being able to deploy my blade was important, but it wasn't a lightning-fast quick draw. It wasn't like Old West gunfighting style deploying your knife. I just got my knife out and got ready. And if I hadn't seen them coming, if suddenly these people were on top of us, I'm not sure any kind of a quick draw technique would have mattered. So to me, either you'll have your knife out already or you won't and you'll have to fight for it. But I don't think the quick draw, I think that's a myth that needs to go away. Which is not to say you shouldn't practice being able to deploy your knife quickly. But, you know, back in the day, we did all kinds of fancy knife tricks. And the one that sticks in my mind is, you know, where you do the, you do the wrist snap and you snap the knife open. <laughs> And there's a really good chance, depending on how you snap the blade, like if you're holding it by the blade and you snap the handle down, there's a good chance you're going to drop that knife right on the floor. I've even seen people snap the knife open while holding the handle and, you know, turning the wrist sort of as it's a semicircular snap. And I've seen a knife fly across the room doing that only once, um, you know, so think about how stress affects you, how it makes normal things seem much more difficult, and whether or not you want to be monkeying around with, with mechanics like that. And then practice, because the more you practice, the more you internalize certain mechanics, the easier they become, even under stress, to the point where you do them without thinking about them. All right, that's going to about do it for this issue of the Warrior Life podcast. I hope you've enjoyed my trip down memory lane, and those of you who remember these catalogs and these knife fighting books, you're every bit as old as I am. <laughs> those of you who don't, consider yourselves lucky for living in this incredible internet era of digitally interactive training, <laughs> because, man, you do not know how good you have it. All right, this is Buck Green in for Jeff Anderson. Until next time, prepare, train, and survive. 
You've been listening to the Warrior Life Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us spread the mission of self-reliance and self-protection when you rate us. And leave us a comment wherever you enjoy these podcasts. And don't forget to check out our posts and videos on our social media channels. You'll see a full directory when you visit our website at www.warriorlife.com. We'll see you next time. This has been the Warrior Life Podcast. Prepare. Train. Survive. Survive.